0: you could stand that half cut and rep better than these guys looks smart, him, and it's We are back with another episode of From the Rafters. Sam and I are here with another guest. We have the voice of the Celtics, Sean Grandy, on the show today. How are you doing
1: today, Sean? I'm doing great, guys. I like the coordinated Marcus Smart jerseys. I think it makes...
2: <laughs> Hey, thanks.
1: Nice symmetry. <laughs> he's he's a
2: universal uh, stability figure throughout all Celtics fans, I would say. Every, he's a, he's pretty much universally loved, well, for I, the most part.
1: I, I agree. I, uh, you know, I kind of started a campaign early this year been a long time it's been what seven years now since we've had a captain mm-hmm. and I you that's know for right. whatever that's worth at certain times certain places and obviously in the whole Kyrie Irving Al Holford situation it would have made sense but to me if you're talking about sort of the natural progression who, if there's going to be a captain it mm-hmm. would be Marcus Martin
0: mm-hmm. for sure Sam always argues that he should be or he is the leader of the team and I agree I've had a couple people on Twitter tell me that that's wrong but I don't I don't understand their argument in that case
1: People on Twitter but, arguing? <laughs> uh,
0: completely unheard of. Completely unheard of. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm the only person that's ever argued on Twitter. People
1: but. on Twitter will argue about whatever it is they decided that you said. That's what I've learned is the latest. <laughs> I had a whole thing about a month ago whenever Anthony Davis hit the buzzer beater for the Lakers. Mm-hmm. Right. And oftentimes, I don't do it a lot, but oftentimes what I will tweet is something that I would say – Sometimes I'll tweet what my call would have been of a game that's on TV if I'm watching it. In this case, it was my first thought, which is when Anthony Davis hit the buzzer beater. I said, that's why LeBron didn't win the MVP. Because, and I know that to be a fact. Like mm-hmm. That's the reason people right. vote for – I voted for 18 years for, in, for the MVP until they changed the way the votes are done. I know what people were thinking. And the reason that LeBron didn't win is because he plays with Anthony Davis. And Giannis, no knock on Chris Middleton, but that's – Chris Middleton is not Anthony Davis, and that's why Giannis Moore sure. in any case, people decided, Laker fans, LeBron fans, of which I'm obviously... The obviously, two worst know, groups. Those. Well, I've been, <laughs> I've been a LeBron guy, obviously, it, it drives Celtic fans crazy, but I've been a LeBron guy since the start, uh, you know, as far as his place in basketball history. But the point being, they all went berserk thinking it was some kind of slam on LeBron. It was just the opposite. Right. I was saying, they were like, what a terrible tweet... T- Oh, that one didn't age well. And like when he, I'm like, it aged perfectly well because it's, it was true then and it's true now. LeBron didn't right. win the MVP. He still doesn't have the he MVP. Because he plays with Anthony Davis. Not because. Yeah. But, you know, among Celtic fans, though, LeBron will always be the guy that went to Miami and he has dashed Celtics dreams time and time and time mm-hmm. again.
0: Yep. Right. that's always Sam's thought. Sam's a big yeah, anti-LeBron guy. I am not a
2: LeBron guy. <laughs>
1: Well, you know what? And so I think answer. he's you good. You ask me the questions the rest of the time yeah. but I'll ask you this cuz I'm fascinated Absolutely. by LeBron's what when LeBron plays his final game at TD Garden 3 years from now, 5 <coughs> years know, from I now. You know, I think
2: about that a fair amount.
1: I team. think it's going to be I think it's going to be overwhelming love for LeBron in Boston the way it was for Kobe when they were chanting MVP at Kobe, Kobe's last game, <clears> I think <throat> that it will be that way eventually. Now we don't know if there's Lakers Celtic history that's yet to be written between the two over the next couple of years. And I personally believe LeBron is hanging out with the opportunity to play with his son in four years or five years or whenever that happens. Right. But all that said, I think that Boston fans who appreciate great, I think the, a lot of the hatred towards LeBron is the acceptance and the understanding that he is the best player of this generation. And that's what, that's what fuels like.
2: Yeah. I don't think there's any doubt about that, but I don't know. I feel like I hope they boo him because I just think that's just the way (laughs) that's just the way we treat LeBron here is we we don't like him. I mean, now I respect LeBron, but I just don't I don't know. I think he just has this attitude cocky um, like I don't know. He's just so he's like a diva kind of there. There's like a whole lot of things that go into it for me. But I do, of course, you know, there's no denying that he's a great player.
1: Well, that's the, that's your, your right as a fan is to feel that right. way. I, I'm fascinated to see when it's all said and done how he ends up feeling about Boston because the Celtics were a very important part of his career. He has a great understanding of the history of the league and right. how you have, to, you, know, you have to take steps forward and how the Celtics was, were in his path in 2008 and 2010, and he appreciated more. When the Celtics lost to Miami in 2011, yeah, Miami didn't win the championship and LeBron had the bad finals and all that. What's well, LeBron's reaction. Go back and watch that, as painful as it may be. When my he finally got past the Celtics, LeBron was oh, – I mean, he felt like he had won a championship, even though he was still a year away from actually doing it, because he understood right. how important it was. And I think, you know, Boston is a difficult place to play for a visiting player and to have the great teams that he had to get past. I just think – you know, I, I look at big-picture stuff and sort of the history of it. And then his the, – arguably the most important game of his career – took place there, you know, in 2012 when the Celtics right. were up 3-2, you know, in the conference finals. So I don't think you can write LeBron's NBA history without putting Boston and, and the Celtics in there.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'd yeah. imagine he feels the same way about the Celtics as the way the fans feel about him. Not that, uh, you know, he just, there's just a mutual, like, distaste but respect. I guess that's the best yeah, way Kobe, to put it.
1: It's funny because Kobe was, Kobe loved the city of Boston. And right. he loved the North End. And I think that has to do with his Italian background and his childhood. But he, he absolutely, it was one of these like little known secrets about Kobe that he used to drive around Boston when he was here. And he absolutely loved it. And he was into both the history and the competitive nature of it. And right. it, meant, you know, it meant something. Lakers-Celtics meant something to him. And I guess that's one of the many shames of what happened a month ago is that we were denied a very mm-hmm. bizarre but yet another – Celtics-Lakers yeah. chapter, this one, with, with LeBron in it.
2: Yeah.
0: Looking forward to that.
1: Sam he and I have had he the... He has gone
2: and made himself the ultimate Celtics villain by joining the Lakers.
0: Oh, yeah. I
2: I yeah. think... Yeah.
0: 100 percent sam and i have had the lebron debate many many times on the show we always end up asking uh whoever we have on their thoughts on lebron so it's good to know you're on my side i've always been a a, i wouldn't say a lebron guy but like respect like he's he's one of the best how do you not like enjoy watching him play we're all biased biased in
1: our our own way we all have our our biases i said Mm -hmm. as early as 2006 i remember saying he is going to be the best ever when it's all said and done so we all tend to go back on, uh, there's a little bit of, I call it the, and you guys are way too young to get the reference, but I call this the down goes Frazier uh, mentality of sportscasters, which is there's a very famous play-by-play call in boxing. Howard Cosell, Mm -hmm. down goes Frazier when George Foreman beats Joe Frazier. And everybody remembers it because it's down goes Frazier, down goes Frazier. The backstory is, Frazier was the favorite in that fight, but Cosell was one of the few people that had picked Foreman. So within (coughs) the context of that, it was not just down goes Frazier, it was I told you so. Down goes Frazier. I had so there's an element like I see it my way. Like we we're we're drowned in politics now, right? Everybody sees things their own way. I see right. it my way, which is that LeBron, in my view, I said fourteen years ago is gonna be the best ever when it's all said and done. And he's still on that trajectory. We don't know what he's. is he has he passed Jordan yet? Has he passed whatever? Probably not. But he's still got five years left. It's still one more chance. We don't know what's left. <laughs> So anyway, that's sort of everybody has their slant, and I think in fairness, and again, Celtic fans don't like to hear it, uh, but in the age of celebrities and star athletes having all kinds of baggage and constantly getting taken down to whatever, what Le- LeBron has lived in the spotlight since he was 18 years old, and mm-hmm. where where is that stuff? You know, I mean, what what are we still talking about nine years later? Well, he had a press conference, bad press conference when he went to Miami. Yeah, but. A, a lot of guys have done a lot worse in a lot more high-profile
0: yeah. spots. It's impressive he's gotten this far and is still where he is without, like you said, any of those bad media interactions that so many people have. But um, wrapping things back around to the Celtics, one of the things we were w- wondering, uh, sort of with what you do, how has COVID and the whole NBA shutdown and all of that stuff changed the way you've had to like cover games and everything like that?
1: Well, it was a very bizarre few months Obviously, and I think uh, I've, I've answered that question a lot, as you can imagine, the last last few weeks and the last few months. Yeah. And I think what I what I my answer is that the best compliment that I've gotten, I happened a few times in August and September, is somebody would see me on the street, you know, running around Boston or whatever, and they'd say, "I thought I thought you guys were in Orlando. I thought you were in the bubble." And that to me is the best compliment because it meant that Max and I and the people we worked with, and whatever from a production standpoint, we really made you believe that we were there. It was very difficult. I'm not going to lie. I think from a preparation standpoint, I've said this many times, we did what we had to do. We all did the best we could do. Players, coaches, broadcasters, referees, everybody. We did our best to give all of you guys the closest we could simulate the product to what it was. But in my job, you can't do my job well, really well, if you're not with the team if you're not traveling with the team, if you're not on the plane, if you're not in the hotels, if you're not on the buses, it's not, you can't really be a team's announcer doing it this way. Now, you know, you're texting the coach, you're texting people back and forth, whatever it's different when you've been tenured, but for the most part, you really can't do it properly. All that said, and calling the games off, you know, a TV monitor that said, we, I think everybody just were at their teeth and did the best we could do to you make it what it was. And I think the fact that there was so much angst in Boston about losing in the Miami series and all, Brad Stevens is this and Marcus smart, just shooting. And I think there were moments that we all, it was actually beautiful as, as, as annoyed as I got with some of that stuff and how people completely forgot where the expectations were for this team and what they achieved right. for all of that. It, I kind of got a kick out of it because I said once in a while during games, take a minute, to realize what we have in front of us. Because in early July, the discussion was, it's a 50-50 shot we get through this. What Mm -hmm. happens when LeBron tests positive? What happens when Jason Tatum has a fever and he has to quarantine for a few? And the fact that we got through a a mini preseason, eight regular season games, and four full rounds of playoffs and crowned a champion without a single positive test was unthinkable in July. And yet it happened
2: absolute incredible job by the NBA and it was a great product to watch too one thing we were talking about before it happened you know we had to dig for things to talk about was you know how is the quality of basketball going to be Are guys going to play differently because there's no fans how, uh, seeing how they've had time off for months are they going to be in shape and it was really great basketball that Raptors series is one of the most entertaining series we've got to watch in a while probably up there with the Washington series for sure
1: plus the home team lost every game
2: yeah, that's incredible. But,
1: you know, visually, it wasn't – I mean, this is the best they could. Obviously, visually, I think that's one of the factors with the ratings. Obviously, time shifting and the, being the wrong season, there were a lot of factors. I think visually, it wasn't terribly – it wasn't remotely as appealing as real games would have been. I think the right. one thing we learned, and we'll take out of it from a game standpoint, because the quality of basketball was very, very high, and I think we were going to move away from this notion of, well, this guy played 32 minutes last night so he has to come out of the game because if he plays 33 his legs will fall off which always <laughs> never struck my like I, I could never wrap my head around that like pitch counts right. like he can throw 90 pitches he's perfect but if he throws that 91st pitch his arm will fall off i was never with that and i think what this thing taught us the bubble among many things is that we need to pay more attention to travel because the quality of the games as we're discussing was so high cuz nobody trapped There were a few back-to-backs in there, but, you know, I I think all of us that do it for a living, I'm doing it for 21 years and travel, and we travel nice. We travel on a charter plane. We stay in nice hotels, and the travel will beat the living heck out of you. You know, if you don't, you really have to go out of your way to take care of yourself. So I think there's going to be more attention paid going forward to travel, to playing Chicago twice and Milwaukee twice, maybe in the same, like, going out there for a week, and that would be a road trip. That kind of thing. They talk about it hurting attendance and things like that, but I think we have to focus more on that and not, you know, look this up, guys. Two years ago, there were six teams in that. There's six teams in that regional area: the three in Texas—Houston, San Antonio, Dallas, New Orleans, uh, Memphis, and Oklahoma City. Two years ago, we played those six teams. We went to those six places on six different road trips.
2: Oh my goodness!
1: Which is like that's hard to do. Like that, 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 that you have to go out of your way to create a schedule that defies geography like that (laughs) and that's how you end up racking up all kinds of air miles and playing back-to-backs instead of taking a bus from milwaukee to chicago or playing two games in a row in chicago you're flying from chicago to miami or orlando to play a back-to-back or something crazy like that and i think that's what they're realizing now with all the studies sleep studies rest studies i think what the bubble taught us is that the travel is much more a part of that than whether a guy plays 32 minutes or 33 Mm -hmm.
0: i mean we're talking about the Raptors Celtic series. Some of those guys like Lowry played 40 plus minutes every single game. So I think that just even more speaks to the fact that you're saying that travel has this impact, especially when you think past the Celtics, like the trailblazers out there in the middle of nowhere, traveling all the way across the country, back and forth every day for a game. Um, I saw something, I don't know if this is true, but a while ago that said the trailblazers travel more than any other team in professional sports. And I mean, it makes sense because they're going here, there and everywhere to play their games because they're, in Washington, they they go down to Orlando, back to California. So uh, Celtics is one thing. I can't imagine all these other teams.
1: The reason I can confirm that is because it used to be the team I went into the league with. Right When I went to the NBA, I was in Minnesota for three years. And Minnesota right. traveled the most miles because every team in our division was at least an hour and 45-minute mm-hmm. flight. And at that time, Portland had Seattle and Vancouver right there. Right. And those are 20-minute flights or whatever. But once Portland was left alone, which is a geographic and city tragedy from which the NBA has never recovered, the worst trade in NBA history was Seattle for Oklahoma City. <laughs> like, and then Vancouver for Memphis is not far behind. But, you know, I was lucky to come into a league. At a time we had all those three cities, you could go and play all three of those teams in four or five right. days, and it was an easy trip. But, yeah, it used to be Minnesota because they were the easternmost team, still are, the easternmost team in the Western Conference.
2: Do you think they should realign the league um, to fit divisions uh, like more closely? Like that uh, Northwest division is crazy because now you've got all those teams moved. You got Memphis, uh, Minnesota, Portland, OKC. Who's the last team? Who am I missing? Um, Denver. Denver. Yeah. So like that's that's like probably like at least a quarter of the country. (laughs) If you like do a cutout around all the cities.
1: It's hard to do it. Uh, I think what they really had to focus on more. And remember, we're not playing. The schedule isn't overly, isn't as division lopsided as it used to be. It's conference lopsided. Maybe, you know, back, back the team. who knows what we're talking about, right? I mean, first of all, the 2021, the 2021 season, that was one of my favorite things when I realized that there wasn't going to be. We start in January. There won't be a 2021 season. It'll just be the 2021 season. And I realized, Hey, that's the same thing. And so next year is already better than this year. Uh, but that season, whatever it is next year, we have no idea what it's going to look like. None. Um, and if we try to play 82 games, which is the, certainly the plan with some limited amount of fans, you know, you're going back to more of a traditional schedule. If we don't, you know, I think the, the originally there was a bubble idea or kind of a double bubble Eastern conference, Western conference, but I think players are done with that. And I think the, right. the model now is, is baseball and football and, trying to play in arenas, but, you know, indoors versus outdoors is a completely different animal. Mm -hmm.
2: Today, they, um, Shams tweeted out that they had like a meeting and they're aiming for December 22nd with 72 games as Mm -hmm. the season. They want to be done before the Olympics.
1: Yeah, that's, and I think that's the goal. I think that it really depends on how the season, the first thing you have to decide is how you're going to play. Are you going to bubble? Are you going to wait? Where, what's, where's testing? Where's a vaccine? Where's all this other stuff? And then you you look at the ideal of where you want to finish, and yeah, there's no there's no question. That's what they would like to do. Um, how realistic that is, you know, we'll see.
0: Yeah, I mean, the seventy two games is I feel like less of the. Sorry, I don't, I'm trying to figure out a way to say this. Less of the problem. Like, I don't think people care about 8272. I think the quick turnaround, because all these people are coming off of three months of not only physically exhausting play in the bubble, but like mentally exhausted, like you're away from your families for so long and all of that. And then to quickly turn around two months later and play in December, that's such a big advantage to the teams that didn't have to play. Like Golden State, Steph and Clay haven't played in two years. You got to imagine they're more rested than guys like LeBron and AD. So I feel like the NBA has to find that balance because while they want to start sooner to get revenue back up and all of this and make up for the losses, they have to worry about the players too because they're going to be traveling again, right? So all of that.
1: And how much true. revenue can you make up if there aren't going to be fans? That's mm-hmm. number one. And there's there's just a lot of different things to uh, you know, look mm-hmm. at. And how, how you're going to play is more important
2: mm-hmm. than the
1: number of games. And the, the, the argument that I've been hearing for years and years, and they want 82, that's for revenue. But if you can't have fans, you're not going to have the revenue anyway. About shortening the season, people don't realize. They're like, well, stars are sitting out, and so top players are only playing 65 games. Let's just have a 65-game season, not realizing that if you do that, then Kawhi's only gonna play fifty games. So yeah. that that isn't gonna solve that mm-hmm. that that problem.
0: Yeah. Uh I think the NBA will find a, a nice balance. I'm confident. They've
2: done well. The, the, the past, NBA but... de- the NBA has been absolutely great with mm-hmm. I mean, really everything that has been thrown at them, the social justice movements, the you know, the virus, they've handled it all great. They did a great job. I, I have complete confidence in them. I think, I mean, the NFL's going about their season – They've had some problems with COVID. I don't know. I feel like the NBA will have it figured out. I mean, plus they've had the opportunity now to watch the MLB and NFL go about their seasons and to see what they're going to have to do with travel and things like that.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's just funny that people wanted to call last year like this asterisk season, and of course it was. And I think asterisk just had a bad reputation. Asterisk just means it was different, and it was. But remember, we got 80% of the season in before the pandemic. Next year is going to be a complete you know, a season that's completely dictated by the pandemic and that the NBA and the NHL aren't going to get back to what remotely resembles normal until, you know, twenty one, twenty two.
0: Mm-hmm. Hopefully things will be better that by then something else we wanted to bring up. We kind of jokingly brought it up earlier with all the uh, Twitter stuff. Um, what are your thoughts on all the trade rumors circling through Celtics media? Like all this stuff that everyone loves to throw out there this time of year.
1: Well, we got to kill time, right? We, we don't <laughs> have games. We're not going to have training camp for a while. <laughs> I think it is normally it's just sort of fun and normally a lot of nonsense. This year, more than any other, there's two things I would, I don't say caution, because to me it's fun, like have fun with the trade rumors, but here are a couple of mm-hmm. things to remember in real life. We have no idea what the salary cap and tax are going to look like, how revenue is going to be affected here. We were inches away from the league being able to invoke a force majeure clause and get rid of the whole collective bargaining agreement if they had to shut down, so you're teetering on that to begin with. We have no idea how the revenue is going to – the dramatic nature with which it's going to drop and what that means for the cap, what it means for the tax, all those things we don't know. That's you know number one. And number two is that when you are – when you rank 28th out of 30, shaking up your team and making dramatic changes, you got a good chance to move up, right, if you're 20 – if you're third from the bottom. If you're right. third from the top, you better be pretty careful as to what you're messing up because – when the answer to the question, "What were the Celtics missing? What separated them from the NBA Finals, whatever?" The answer is two things. Not much is the answer, but yeah. health is probably health is probably at the top of the list. With the roster you have, of course you want to tweak. Of course you want, uh, you know, a little more experience and more more skill more offense in the bench. all these little things if you could pick and choose i just like to point out there are about 23 24 25 other teams that would gladly trade places with the celtics with their roster and their cap and their future which makes it harder and harder to deal when it's harder and harder to improve your team
2: people don't understand that people just think (laughs) you know the thing that we always talk about is the Patriots people are the worst because they are the ones that are the loudest. They really pay attention the least and they are the least satisfied when things go wrong, especially the younger Patriots people because they've had nothing but success, you know, with Brady being here for most of their life. And now they see the Celtics not making the finals and they think Gordon Hayward's bad, Marcus Smart's bad, get rid of him. And, like, I think the the point you made about being third from the top and, like, improving through trades is, like, nails it on the head is how I feel about trading because I personally am very cautious when it comes to trades because you know what you have and giving it away for something that you are unfamiliar with is a big risk, in my opinion, especially with draft picks. Like, people, one thing we'll probably get to the trade people have been talking about is Marcus Smart to Golden State for their pick. And I don't know what else is involved, but those are the main things. Like, do you really want to trade somebody that's Marcus so unique, such a hustle player makes winning plays for someone that hasn't even played a league game yet. And on top of that, hasn't even gotten a full, um, you know, college season to show what they're made of. I think that's such a huge risk.
1: And when are those, when is James Wiseman, when are Lamelo ball, when are those guys going to become players that impact winning in the NBA? You are on the verge of it now. You don't want to get younger. You want to get older. And this is a problem, one of the many problems with the, the 2019 Celtics. I call them the orange vanilla Coke Celtics because we learned that orange is great, vanilla is great, Coke is great. But you put all three of those things together. Maybe not. So that that was what I called <laughs> that's last. It's a great season. name. Well, that's the, and they were they were pushing that during the tournament. My wife was doing the tournament with Kevin Harlan and Reggie Miller or whatever. Like every ten minutes, there was a commercial for orange vanilla Coke at that you know at that mm-hmm. same time. So that season was unfolding. But one of the many problems which we didn't see at the time was that the bench, and I don't want really to call it the supporting players. I, I think of like spots four through eight, four through nine in the roster, or after Kyrie and Horford were young players that had not really made their place yet in the league and they hadn't gotten their, their contract and they hadn't gotten their money and they hadn't proven that they could become very good players in this league. You look back at what Golden State did over that five-year run. Who was in those spots for them? Andre Iguodala, Sean Livingston, Zaza Pachulia, guys who had already been in the league and been around. And the Celtics were trying to do that with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Terry Rozier and young guys who were still trying to figure it out you need that that sort of older group. And it's funny when you went with, you know, Brad Wanamaker, he was a veteran. You knew what you were getting every right. night. And so I think that's you go back to that sort of Doc Rivers thing about not really liking rookies and young players and young teams. Young teams are really exciting on paper. It's fun to think of what they could do and say, oh, who's the next, you know, the next big thing. But um we just talked about we started this by talking about LeBron James, who won a championship in his ninth year. And we're talking about maybe the the best player ever. And he still didn't Mm -hmm. win a championship until his ninth year. So there were certain guys around him or whatever. So I am, maybe it's, you know, my advancing age that speaks to this, but I'm not, I don't get my socks all twirling again about the best 19-year-old player out there. There's some Mm -hmm. great, and by the way, the NBA has never been stronger. Look at the list Mm -hmm. of guys, 25 and under in the league right now. It's insane. With the, I mean, and you're talking, you probably have the second best one after Doncic, you know, mm-hmm. in, in Tatum. Right. So, I mean, you literally, I, I said, look how strong the league is. I did try to do it in a tweet. And you can't, like, one tweet, two tweets, and you're still going to tick people off because you're just leaving guys yeah, right. off the list. Because there's so many great under 25-year-old players
2: in yes. this league.
1: So, to me, that says that those guys are going to be 24, 26, 28. Those elite players were a guy you get now who's 19. He develops later, so I, I think when you're on the verge of a championship, you're around it, as the Celtics certainly were, and I'd remind you, when the Celtics were up 2-0 on Toronto, they were the favorites. They were the statistical betting right. you were They mm-hmm. were had the inside track, people thought, on a championship now. So, I'm just, that's a long way of saying, I'm very wary about making major changes to a team that is this close.
2: I'm glad, because I agree with you. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> like big trades at all. I think The way I've talked about getting better the most has been through free agency, if whatever they can do with their money. But uh, one player I particularly have been like pounding the rock (laughs) on, like bringing back, is is Rondo. I just think he would be really great off the bench. You know, he's won two titles now. Um, I don't think he had the best exit from Boston. And I think it would be a very redeeming way for him to come back and contribute to a contending team. And, you know, his know-how would be great with surrounding players like Tatum and Brown and even Kemba if they played him off the ball. Um I just hope he would, you know, if he's going to opt out, if he would want to take the money and come back. And I think makers deal's up, so I just think it would be a decent replacement.
1: Fans would love it. Fans would go yeah. crazy about it. I mean, I think about Rondo. What's really among the most impressive things about Rondo, and he's a fascinating dude that is a several-hour podcast all to himself in those early years and who he became. Is that he has managed to not only stay in the league, but become an efficient, effective player in a league that <coughs> is completely dependent upon shooting. Yeah. People can't shoot, which is amazing how he has evolved his game. You know, when he came in the league, it looked like he was going to be the man. And then all of a sudden, the league changed. And he literally had the president of the United States doing podcasts saying, Yeah, Rondo's great, but he can't shoot. I mean, that, which <laughs> last him up for weeks, by the way, when that <laughs> happened. But it, it's pretty, it's remarkable to watch, you know, his maturity. All of it. I I, I, I think everybody would love
2: that. Yeah,
0: we we had um one of our writers at we have a site called Bannertown. Uh, Tim write about potential free agents. He brought up a bunch of like returns, like Isaiah Thomas coming back, Aaron Baines and Rondo, and just talking about if any of them could have an impact. Uh, Sam's been big on Rondo. I think Baines would be great. And then there's this whole. Movement for Isaiah Thomas coming back to Boston, and and all the reports say he's healthy now. He came out and said he's completely back to normal. Do you think Isaiah could have a role in Boston if he were to come back?
1: I certainly have a role somewhere. I mean, he mm-hmm. deserves it. It's really yeah, one of the most for sure. you know bizarre that that chapter in his life in Celtics history. You know, so many things have happened. You know, I think we get we get fixated on the '80s, right, and then the new Big Three era. But there's these always little pockets of time that are always fascinating to kind of look back on. And the instant love affair between Isaiah Thomas and the city and the fans was amazing. It was a symbiotic relationship. Like the Celtics needed someone like Isaiah Thomas, and Isaiah Thomas needed an organization like the Celtics to give him that chance and a city to love him the way Boston did. And to go from the fifth best player in the league or finishing fifth in the MVP voting to arguably one of the five worst players in the league the next year because he couldn't move. You know, he deserves that that story. Yeah. I thought Denver was a really good spot for him because Mike Malone yeah. was always a big Isaiah guy, but his body just was not willing It'd be a great, you know. I, I always think that the love for Isaiah here was so great, it undermined Kyrie mm-hmm. time here that, that yeah. people never got, you know.
2: I remember being bummed when they traded Isaiah. Yeah. Even, even though Kyrie was such a star, I just was like it's similar to the Marcus situation for me you know that those guys are so unique and like mm-hmm. they have a bond with the city like you say and like I feel like giving up guys like that is just a mistake even though I mean they probably got the best value out of the Kyrie trade but like you know obviously it still didn't meet the goal there is no championship 20-20 yeah this is
1: what I learned. I had a fascinating moment of fatherhood there, so my son he just turned nine he was not quite six when the trade was made, and like every other four and five year old in Boston, he absolutely adored Isaiah Thomas loved right. isaiah i've got great videos of showing him box scores the next morning when he woke up and he'd look across the thing and see the fifty three points in his eyes <laughs> i you know I had a hunch, obviously, I have information you know um from time to time, so I had a hunch as to what might be happening that someone. I kept warning him. Listen, there's a chance this buddy, there's a chance that Isaiah could whatever. I talked about the different scenarios, the the Kyrie Irving one, and he was with his mother that the day it happened and not with me. So I ended up I FaceTimed him. And now I've got to be a father to my almost six year old and tell him that his favorite player got traded. Oh. And so right. So I said, Listen, listen, buddy, you know what we've been talking about, right? With Isaiah Thomas and that he might get traded, right? He goes, Yeah, he goes he goes, Did it happen? I said, Yeah. It happened. And he paused for a second and I'm waiting to see his reaction. He goes, Did we get so do did we got that guy from Cleveland? We got that really good player from Cleveland, Kyrie. And I said, Yeah, buddy, we did. He goes, Okay. <laughs> that's cold, man. That that's too, <laughs> that's wrong. That's like not even six years old. He was like, just you know. So you yeah. get what you he my son got what he deserved.
0: <laughs> I, I had just gotten back from like the Nike alley and I got I didn't even know it. I got a pair of Isaiah Thomas shoes at Nike, and I come home, and I get home, and I look at my phone. And I'm like, well, <laughs> these shoes aren't worth much anymore.
2: Well,
1: and I was thinking about that trade in that day is that uh, having been in the NBA for 20 years as I was when that happened, if you could pick one day out of the calendar year, the old calendar, the pre one day a year that you felt you could take the day off, and you were safe from anything happening or any news, like August 22nd. That is the dead, uh, you know, like early August to mid-September is as dead as it gets in the NBA. And you could have picked like that day as the single deadest day in the NBA. And all of a sudden, the Celtics make this major, major deal.
2: So you mentioned like there were multiple things that could happen. Can you tell us like anything else (laughs) that you might have thought might have been going on or you can't share that? When then? Yeah, yeah, you said like you know. No, I just I, I knew that, oh. that
1: that was in play.
2: So okay,
1: I was able to kind of lay the foundation, lay the groundwork for my son, so it wouldn't be completely okay. Uh, the one I don't the I remember of all the ones. It's funny because we just talked about him in the in the Woj Shams world, right? Oftentimes, I've literally been with Danny Ainge when one of those guys writes something that he didn't know about really I, wow. I think the one that comes to mind is that remember Vander Blue we signed Vander Blue to a 10 day contract yes. I was with I was with Danny when that happened and he didn't know that it, the whole thing was done or whatever that when one of them Woj I think reported so that's how far ahead they get so the wow. point being when the Rondo trade happened that one I knew about for it was a very bizarre thing to live 3 or 4 days ahead of Woj at that time <laughs> cuz I knew the Rondo trade was happening and like on a, it happened, I would say on a Thursday and it was like Sunday or Monday. You have to look it up. We were in Philadelphia and I'm like, this thing's happening. And it was still, he still had two more games to play as it turned out because I remember just please don't let this break. You're prepared with all your Rondo stats and all your everything that you have to, if you're in my spot for when it happens and right. like, please don't let it happen. Thursday, just not Thursday. Anytime you're waiting, waiting, waiting. And of course I'm at like Edaville railroad with my son <laughs> you know, however old he was at that point. He's like two or three years old, three. And I'm literally, I have him trying to tweet while I'm on like one of the, you know, <laughs> good rounds with the three-year-old. And <laughs> of course that's when it went down. But it is, you know, you're always going to hear things ahead of time. The, you know, the Garnett thing in 2007, obviously those are the two organizations I was most tapped into. So right, I knew for a long time, I remember sort of trying to drum up interest and sort of love in the idea i remember being on talk shows on ei and telling the host john dennis at the time like ask me about if there's anything the Celtics could be doing just to because people didn't understand in 2007 mm-hmm. who kevin garnett was not just how great a player he was but the impact and i remember you know i had been in minnesota i knew the potential for what it would be i knew that he and boston were soulmates that had been a part and if they ever got together it would be a, a marriage made in, in basketball and sports heaven, but there was—it's again forgotten part of history. And you guys are almost probably too young to even remember it. But there was pretty strong sentiment. The the concept there was Al Jefferson, and I think all of us had done such a good job in building up Al Jefferson to be the next big thing that nobody wanted to trade Al Jefferson away. Right. And there was a poll yeah. in the Boston Herald in two thousand seven. Would you trade Al Jefferson for Kevin Garnett? And eighty percent of the people said no. And. <laughs> I just remember that entire spring sort of like carrying the water of just talking about Kevin Garnett. Like you people realize what it could be. And there were a couple of different versions of that early on that had Wally Zerbiak before he went to, you know, Seattle, obviously Minnesota won. Rondo. There was a lot of, that, that thing went on. That was what July 31st, August 1st, that was going on from the time that season had ended, you know, in April.
0: And now a quick word from our sponsor. Mm-hmm. It, you, this whole Wojan Shams sorry, thing is crazy. Oh, sorry, my bad. I was just okay. talking more about how crazy this is because, like, we see scenarios where, like, Harrison Barnes was playing a game when Wojan Shams dropped the report that he was traded, and they had to take him off the sideline and everything, and all these pictures. I mean, respect to him for still <laughs> sitting on the bench and not trying to get upset or crack a smile or whatever. But it, it's crazy how far ahead these guys get. Sorry, Sam, you can go ahead with what you wanted to say. Do
2: you have Do you have any trades that never happened that you? You know there was a lot of wind behind because this is so interesting to me that you kind of know well, things is, that are but going it's also on. Also,
1: one of those like you know uh, Shakespeare, I mean, thinks me knows too much. Like <laughs> right. never got out and whatever. Um, I think there was. I mean, there were a lot of them involving Ray Allen, obviously, in right. uh, you know in that time period in 2010. There was certainly one. Um, I, I will tell you guys this: there was one involving Ray Allen and Tracy McGrady. And I remember feeling at the time, as the discussion was going on, that it sounded, it sounds really interesting, but that Paul Pierce and Tracy McGrady (laughs) overlapped more than Paul Pierce and the way Allen did. That's why it wouldn't, you know, um, it it would not have worked. There's always, there's always a million of them. I think the OJ Mayo thing was something that, that got out. That was, that was a conversation. He ended up not wanting, not wanting really to come here. So um, there's always What I always talk about with trade rumors is that if somebody calls Danny Ainge and says, I'll give you Fred VanVleet for Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Temple Walker, and Gordon Hayward, and Danny Ainge says, that's crazy, and hangs up, Danny Ainge has discussed a trade that would send, you know, by definition, he has discussed it by saying that's that's insane and hanging up. So – and – the old Jerry Seinfeld joke about the two guys that walk out of the back when we had newspapers, the two guys that walk out of the newspaper at the end of the day, and one says to the other, Man, we just made it. Everything fit. If one more thing happens today, we're screwed. Like we wouldn't have been able to fit it in. A, you know, the joke being that there's oh, wherever there's content that has to be created, there are websites and rumors. Things have to be, you've know, you got to make up stuff to fill all that time. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's fun, but it's not necessarily real. Mm-hmm.
0: You always question the validity validity of some of these things going on, but um, the next thing we wanted to bring up, kind of looking back at this past season, um, which Celtics rookie from like last year? So I'm talking Grant Williams, Romeo Langford. Do you think has uh, the potential to take the biggest leap next season? Like we've talked, people have talked about Romeo Langford and his defense. Grant Williams obviously showed amazing potential. Then there's guys like Carson and Tremont, both showed some potential in different places. So who who do you see having the potential oh. to take that?
1: I don't see Grant Williams really taking much of a leap because I think that's who Grant Williams is going to be, and he's going to be in the league for a long time. I and mean, that right. guy—that's yeah. how you get paid and stay in the league for a long time—is you, you, you become the player that Grant Williams already is. It's like he was born to be an NBA role <laughs> player and and play that spot and just be the kind of guy you want to have on your team. I think that you know Romeo is certainly the most intriguing. Um, yeah, I agree. Player, uh, certainly I think you know Tremont Waters is going to be a. He's a, a, you know, a four, four, a player. Like I think he's going to bounce back and forth. We've seen guys like that, the Rick Brunson's of the world that stay in the league for a long time because they can give you NBA minutes and, you know, between the G league coming back and forth. But I think Romeo Langford, if he can stay healthy is, is kind of like, I'm not a big believer in guys being injury prone. There are, you, you can just have bad luck early in your career or bad luck. Like Orton Hayward late in your career. Um, I think that's the, obviously the guy to watch because we saw very brief flashes of high-level NBA defense from Romeo Lankford, and that's what sort of catches my eye. I mean, uh, this is a – we're in a, the reason the Celtics are an elite team now is because we are in a Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown world. That's what the league is. It's not a point guard-dominated league right now. It's not a big man-dominated league. It's six, seven wing guys that can defend multiple positions, and Romeo Langford could be one of those guys. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's funny. Anytime like we talk about Romeo on this podcast, like I like to remind people how great he was when he was he got he got the nod to start a couple games. I know Orlando was one of them, and I think Atlanta was another. And he played like really solid minutes in both those games. And he even had some impact plays down the stretch in the Orlando game, if I remember correctly. So he definitely has the potential to be a contributor on a good team. But it's interesting you mentioned earlier about, you know, the age being important for the uh you know, the four through nine guys and if that will be a factor with him or not.
1: Yeah, I I just don't. It's um, tough to be a young player. There's pros and cons of being a young player on a very good team. Right. Because you're around elite players, and you sort of see how winning is done, but you don't get to play. So, you know, what's the best way to develop in the NBA? Is the best way to develop playing eight minutes a game or ten minutes a game on a really good team, or is the best way to develop playing 28,
2: 30 minutes on a bad team. I mean, so far we've got to see it pan out. Well, Jason Tatum got big minutes his rookie year, but Jalen Brown did not, and he has panned out very well. And he's really underrated by a lot of outside people that aren't Celtics fans because they don't realize how great he is. But, you know, I think that's a good idea for them to kind of let players sit back and watch, at least on these Celtics teams. You know, you had him on that Isaiah Thomas team that went to the conference finals. You know, Romeo had a very similar rookie year to Jalen. So I think the second year for Romeo can be very interesting.
1: Yeah, I think second year is – and this was a weird time in the bubble because it was like a mini yeah. offseason.
2: Year 1.5.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I, I don't think there's any question. I think there will be a lot of eyeballs on him. Again, going back to how the schedule was put together and are they compressing games and are you going to need more guys to play minutes – if, uh, in, in the season in which, if you're
0: trying to squeeze a lot of games in a short amount of time, yeah, I, I really like Romeo. He showed good defense in the bubble, too. Uh, unfortunate, they he only got to play what 81 seconds one of those games in the playoffs, but it
2: was really um, crazy because he hurt himself and like he tore a ligament. and They were like, Yeah, yeah he's gonna play again. <laughs> like, how do you play with a torn ligament? Like, that's that's pretty serious stuff. I'm not, I'm There's not, a, much uh, they
1: just wanted to play defense, I
2: guess. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, it's impressive, but um. Uh, speaking of last season and year 1.5, I guess, uh, it's tough to point out one thing as like the quote-unquote best takeaway, but I just wanted to get some of your thoughts on what do you think the biggest things to take away from last season are moving forward. Was it Jason Tatum's huge development post-February? We know February Tatum is a big thing. Jalen Brown's consistency, or is there anything you want, you think is the biggest thing from last year?
1: Well, I think that's the, the one thing that we always said, that Max and I said a lot, is that Kemble was great at the start of the year and he deserved his all star spot. People forget just how good he was, like coming out of the gate after I mean, that opening night game in Philadelphia. And <clears throat> hey, Gordon Hayward was having an all-star caliber year until he got hurt he wasn't an all-star consideration, not because of the quality of his play, but because he missed so many games, mm-hmm. you know, in right. November and December in that early part of the year. And that Jason Tatum, once he got to January, just took off to the mm-hmm. next level. And you understood why he was an all star, why everyone was having the conversations about him, but that there wasn't little question to us, to Max and I, that Jalen Brown was the Celtics' best player throughout the course of the Mm -hmm. year, that he just did this throughout the year and then got better. The the, the the, the beauty of one of the many great things about last year and all Celtic fans wanted after 2019 was forget the wins and losses. Just give me a team I can root for because I hated that team Mm -hmm. so much in 2019. (laughs) And you not only got a team you could root for, not only did you get a team that played and was in virtually every game and had it was challenging the franchise record for most consecutive games without a double digit loss. They had, it was 44 in a row until the fourth quarter got away in the last game against Miami. They had not lost games since February by 10 points. That game in Houston, it literally had been, had a chance to win every single game from February through the stoppage, through the bubble, through the conference finals. They had a chance to win every game until that last one. So um, when you look at a season like that, you realize that, you know, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, one made the All Star team, one didn't, and both got better after that. Just like Jalen Brown had the chip yeah. on his shoulder, whatever it was, and got better. Jason Tatum rose to the occasion of it, and I think the one thing we'll never, we don't really know, is the the great mystery of last year is Kemba Walker's health and where it really was during that time. And maybe he was completely healthy, and it's just you know he had that slump the way Ray Allen had a slump, that everybody forgets in the 08 playoffs he really struggled in the cleveland detroit portion of the uh portion of the playoffs
0: hmm. yeah yeah i think kemba's knees were a big thing obviously gordon hayward had freak injuries we always debate um on the show whether you said you don't believe in injury prone whether hayward is injury prone or just has bad luck because at a certain point you don't know. But then again, all these injuries are so disconnected to each other, like that freak leg injury. No one could predict that. But, and then the hand, it's just all these things. Like he's just bumping into people and breaking bones at this point. But um, it's all a matter of whether you think it's him as a player or just freak things. And he's just the unluckiest man in the NBA at this point. But, um, Sam, I know there's some questions you always like to ask, including a specific one about favorite moments or something. So I'll, I'll let Absolutely. you take Absolutely,
2: Yeah, every every time we have a new guest on, Sean, I always have like an end-of-the-show rundown kind of questions I like to ask. Uh, the first one being, what is the most interesting piece of Celtics memorabilia you might have? I know, you know, you might not have grown up as a Celtics fan, but you have like your Mets World Series ticket in the background, things like that. And what's like the story You know what,
1: game, you know what game that is, right?
2: Is that the Bill Buckner game?
1: I was there, my friends. Oh man, man. (laughs) crazy. Um, well, since we're doing show and tell, it's always like the big finish, the big dramatic finish. (laughs) Celtics memorabilia. I would imagine this one would be hard to top. Oh, wow. What is yeah. it? Oh, it's a ring. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> what is that? Yes.
2: Have your screens cut off on my screen. That's why I couldn't see it right away. But yeah, that's pretty uh, tough to be. Yeah, I was
1: I was single at the time. So when I got this, it was always a very like, hey, you know, call.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> of worked out nice. It was Yeah, it was a popular that, show-and-tell item for a yeah. while. That wins, was actually
2: yeah. one of my questions I was going to ask if they gave you a ring. But that, is. that must mean Gorman has a ring for sure. Oh, yeah.
1: Tom, yeah does, do way. you think
2: Tommy gets rings every time they win?
1: I'm sure Tommy got one in 8 Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah. Tommy's probably got more rings than Russell now. But that's awesome. <laughs> that's so cool. Um, you asked
1: about memorabilia. That's always like
2: that. Yeah, big that's so connection. cool. Um, all right. So – beside, I mean, you are at every game, so usually I, this is a two-part question, but since you're at every game, what is your favorite moment you've got to witness live? I I will cancel the championship because that's probably an obvious number one. Yeah, favorite you know, moment? obviously
1: being in the finals, doing a seventh game of the finals, I right. think, I, you know, I always felt that for me as an announcer, when you recognize you're in the middle of history and a month before that, as it was happening in real time, I remember feeling like, like uh, I really, I have this game as a play-by-play announcer. You'll probably you hear us talk about like having control of the plane. Like when you really have it, like when you're calling a good game and combined with the history that was happening, it was obvious as the Paul Pierce LeBron game seven was happening that you were in the middle of something that was going to be remembered and discussed, you know, for, for a very long time. And obviously there are the finals and they're, you know, I have a story that I always tell about Game Seven, which is sitting next to Doris Burke, who's a great friend of mine. In, in the middle of it's Game Seven of the NBA Finals, and you're looking around, and you know Jack Nicholson's over here, and Stallone and Eddie Murphy and Steven Spielberg are there, and Dustin Hoffman's three rows behind you, and it's the Celtics and Lakers Game Seven that we grew up watching. And she went to interview Doc at the end of the first quarter, and they hand out the stat sheets, and I flipped the flipped mine over; it was just a blank piece of paper, and I drew two circles on it and put it in front of her for when she sat back down. And the big circle said world, and the little circle said us, you know, right in the middle, because that's what it felt like. We were just, like, kicking each other under the table. Like, do you believe right. yeah, yeah, yeah. where we are? And Game 7 of the NBA Finals is going on. The whole world's watching, and we're right in the middle of it. Back in, you know, what, from broadcasting standpoint, was the good old days when we were, you know, courtside. 08 oh, was the last year in Boston, <laughs> so you always see Max and I when a lot of these old games were on during the early days of the pandemic. Um, those are the, you know, Max and I sitting, sitting courtside and you we were like literally right in the middle of it.
2: Yeah. That's super cool. And it was like a good game too. You know, it wasn't like a blowout. So you, you had those moments happening in front of you throughout the whole game. That's awesome. Yeah, I
1: remember like as an announcer, the first game seven I ever got to call was against Indiana in 2005. And I remember really being locked in and you can, you feel like you're going to have a great game and then the game completely lets you down. And that was a terrible game and a blowout game and a loss. And it's not the loss. It was just a blowout (laughs) game. And it's like, well, what a, you know, what a big letdown. And I think we, you know, you knew the game bringing everything full circle from the start of the conversation. I had a hunch we in game five in 2012 in Miami Celtics win, they go up three, two, it's an amazing game. Paul Pierce hits that dagger shot. And Max is going on and on about how great, amazing the environment's going to be in Boston and OKC and the finals and whatever. And as we were wrapping up, I said, but if ever a scenario was set up for LeBron to change his legacy, it's Friday night, you know, or whatever, Thursday night at the Garden. And so it was very clear it was going to be history made that night, just as four years earlier, two years earlier, Sports Center had everybody on their roster at the Garden for game six. Of that second round series, knowing it could be LeBron's last game. And I, I think the ones you remember are the ones that you know, you're in the middle of history. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, particularly as you get older, particularly as we all watched Michael Jordan in the last dance and you know how, where things belong in the history of this league that you want to you just want to document it properly. Mm-hmm.
2: That's yeah. such an awesome answer because, you know, you have the opportunity, unlike, you know, anybody else we've ever spoken to, to mm-hmm. have been there and actually have like a part in the games that are happening. And, you know, usually the answer we get is like the, the most popular one for sure is the Marcus smart double charges. And I personally think that's an incredible moment. Yeah. And then what's another one? The Isaiah Thomas 50 point games is another mm-hmm. one. The game two against Washington. Kelly um, game. Yeah. The Kelly. <laughs> oh, game. Um, but uh, yeah, seven. like the big stage is such an interesting thing that I personally never even think about. Like you getting to be involved in that is so awesome. Like, that's like everybody's dream.
1: Well, you want you you just want to do it right. Like, you're aware that you're yeah. not not to knock any other franchise in the NBA. But when you're the voice of the Boston Celtics, it's
2: you know, yeah, the voice of the New it's York different. Yankees,
1: the Montreal Canadiens, or whatever. It's there's a long history that goes with it, and you know, it's going to be it's going to be remembered.
2: Mm-hmm. Let's see what else. We usually – Jack is the jersey guy, but, like, it's a little different for you because I can't imagine as a uh, play-by-play commentator you have many jerseys to wear around.
1: No, yeah. I I do have um, – I, I collect – it's funny. It's not behind me. I collect Negro Lake stuff. Mm-hmm. So I have, okay. So I have some old – I have, like, a Jackie Robinson Montreal uh, thing. I've got, like, a Homestead Grays, Josh Gibbs. So I collect things mm-hmm. like that. I wear – well, here's something. Here's a little a scoop just for your podcast that, like, two other people know. Um, I don't like. It's it's a really ridiculous thing. I hate dress socks. Okay? Dress I hate socks. Those thin thin. Black I don't like socks. them either.
2: No, I, I, don't, I don't see think the point.
1: Likes them, but everybody wears them. I hate them so much that I every game I've ever called in the NBA, or whatever, every, I wear thick white sweat socks like you wear <laughs> on a regular day, and I wear the thin black dress sock over it. I like, <laughs> it makes me feel whatever. So my the thin black socks I wear are Negro League. They're Kansas City Monarchs socks. Yeah, they're that's different. Cool. There's like Negro whoever. So like, Mark Jackson's like the only one that knows because he's a he's a big Negro League guy too. But these are like that's the only where where like souvenirs come into. You know, yeah. The, the that's funny. Okay,
2: so for you especially, you get to work with Max every game. You have a favorite um, Cedric Maxwell moment during a commentary. He always says these crazy things. I mean, I'm sure something stands out. I will,
1: skip, I will skip the one that involves bad language, which he used on okay. the air, um, okay. inadvertently, not realizing we were on the air. Um, <laughs> but there are – I think sort of the way we fit together is – makes for those moments. It was 100 to choose from, but I always like yeah. the one when he would try to reach a little farther than his grasp. And he – in talking about a player – I forget who it was one night. And he said, I just thought it was just such a Grandi and Max moment. He said he has that certain je ne sais pas. And so I let that sit there in the air for a second. And <laughs> that he has that certain I don't know. And he goes, yeah. I'm like, okay, good <laughs> enough. That'll, that'll have to do. Uh, you know, listen, I think every, every successful broadcast pair, every successful – inside the NBA is the best studio show ever done. And here's the reason why. Because this is what has in common with all great TV shows at the end of the day you know that the characters genuinely love each other right regardless of the family squabbles that they have right and i think that the element that it was max who first called me when i was in minnesota i turned down the job three times in the summer 2001 and it was max who called me when i first started thinking about it seriously because i thought we could be better than the sum of the parts that it could be a thing and here we are you know you guys were little kids, and that happened and nineteen years later,
2: yeah.
1: we're talking about here we we still are we're going down into the bubble of the Celtic locker room to call playoff games, and we've been all over the all over the country and almost done two thousand games together, so wow.
2: that's incredible that's amazing so you I have like two more questions, then we'll finish up um so you get to travel with the team. My mom's friend is actually one of the flight attendants for uh you guys renee um I love she. Renee. Yeah. She's awesome. Yeah. So what do you have like a favorite travel story with the team? Anything you've seen happen on the plane? That's interesting. Um, you know, anything along those lines?
1: Well, in in my eventual book one day, we'll, we'll probably talk about the flight from hell, which was in 2008. If I remember, if I say games from 2008, as young as you guys are, you'll remember them because there were significant milepost games. One of them was the game in Houston, part of the Texas Triangle sweep, in which <clears throat> the Rockets had won right. 21 in a row. Well, and the Celtics just demolished them that night. It was a Tuesday night TNT game because it was NCAA tournament time or whatever. And we, had, we went to Dallas from there and, and completed the Texas Triangle. And we had two days. It was a Tuesday night game in Houston, Thursday night game in Dallas, and the weather was very, very bad. But we decided we're going to go anyway. And as it turns out, the pilot had given Doc, because Doc should have say in the flight plan, for God's sake. <laughs> He basically what you, we have two choices here we can take a we can, like an hour and 40 minute flight and go all the way around all the storms whatever or it'll be a 40 minute flight right through it <laughs> what do you think he chose you know right so, through the storm but he was always he, uh, he know, oh dude was that a rough flight i didn't even notice i was working i'm like as the rest of us are peeling our fingernails off the. so we took um the long story short we took two lightning strikes um Oh about 15 minutes after takeoff. Oh this goodness. is the, yeah, the forgotten story. The 2008 championship almost didn't happen because uh, anyone who was on that plane, <laughs> ask any of the players from the 08 season, they'll remember that flight from Dallas to, from Houston to Dallas, which like we, like we were rushing to get there when the game wasn't for two days <laughs> and it was just, you know, we fly for a living. I've been on thousands and thousands of flights. So, you know, the ones that are, if, listen, we've had a ton of aborted landings at Hanscom you know, I've been in a couple of emergency land. Stuff happens, right? But this was right. um, literally uh, what I would, I like Mike Gorman who flew, who flew, you know, in the military. He and I are both sort of aviation people and we look at the weather and whatever. And I like to go to the pilot for the flight because you'll say, hey, what, you know, what's it going to be like up there? And then the pilot will give you that pilot stuff, right? Like, oh yeah, you know, there's a couple of clouds up there. We're going to do this thing and we're going to fly up, and, you know, whatever. And it's going to be great. That night I get on the plane and to try to do that trick so I can get the reassurance. And I said, well, how, how bad is it out there? He goes, it's bad. <laughs> like that. That's it. That's all I, that's all I get. We also, wow. a couple of years ago, do you remember the bomb cyclone in, uh, in Boston? About two years ago, I'd say. Vaguely, yeah. Years, I don't know if I we remember We were flying that. to Houston that day and the uh, Logan was closed and we took off anyway into it. Oh, and that was, wow. Oh, my goodness. And the <laughs> reason we can do it is because when you take off, all you have to do is hit the sky. Right. So yeah, you just right. have to keep the thing going up no matter how bad, how insane the, the turbulence is. You can go upside down as long as you're going up. And there were no other planes in the sky because they had grounded everything because of the weather. Um, yeah. And the pilot comes on and says, Well, Mother Nature's going to have her way with us the first 10, 15 minutes. I was like, What? What? Huh. And so, so there are times you think, Yeah, it's, it's a, this is the stuff they don't tell you about in the brochure. Because you guys are like, Man, Grant's yeah. got a great job. He's got the greatest job <laughs> in the world. There's some stuff they leave yeah. out of the. The shores, mm-hmm. those, uh, those guess, I guess a Houston's
2: a bad omen.
1: Houston's yeah. a bad omen.
2: Houston yeah, involved right. with both the terrible me,
1: plays. Um,
2: and then the last thing I'm going to ask is, you mentioned KG and the Celtics were like a match made in heaven. Are there any players that aren't currently on the Celtics now around the league that you think would be great fits like that with the attitude, you know, the culture? I, I personally have one that I'll mention after. I'm just curious. What I you know know what you're me, give,
1: give me yours. All
2: right. So I, I think Joel, Joel Embiid would be a great mm-hmm. Celtic. Because I think he's got—I um, don't know—he just he the people would love him. He's like a competitive guy. He's an entertainer. To KG, he's an entertaining yep. guy. I just think he would really fit well with the the city and I don't the know, culture I, I behind I like, the Celtics. I think
1: the lack of intensity might drive people crazy. Like he's sort of the anti-KG that way. That's why to me yep. the KG thing was, you know, like an obvious perfect fit yeah. um, with those two. I, that that's an interesting one. Um, yeah. I always felt again that we've moved past a player you'd be adding now, although he still played in the league this year. I always thought Joakim Noah would have been that guy. Yeah. That fans would have really loved him. Smart guy. He would have been engaging with the media, or whatever, and you know played a, played a certain role on the team. Um, it's interesting, you know, because we have you know, Marcus Smart is the defensive Kyle Lowry, right? Like Kyle right. Lowry would have would have been that. I, I think Boston loves guys like that, that guys that sort of overachieve. And just scrap and stay in your face, which is what, you know, that's that pretty much is the symbol of it's why, like, Jeff Green was sort of the anti, you know, everybody waited for it, but it wasn't.
2: wasn't Yeah, it didn't come. We're we're both big Jeff Green guys. That's really when we super, talented, great guy,
1: super talented. It's not his fault. No, yeah, right. That's the thing. There was a (laughs) Celtics had a player again, he goes too young in 2004, named Chris Mim. And mm-hmm. he was in a league, you know, played at the University of Texas, or whatever. Good player, had a good career, but like he was a great tennis player. He didn't love basketball, but he was seven feet tall and he was good at it. Jeff Green, God made Jeff Green a basketball player, but he didn't make him someone who loves the game. It's not Jeff yeah. Green's fault. Right. The same way, again, another topic for another time. It's why the, Ky- the Kyrie Irving thing here. Kyrie Irving in Boston for two years. You know who he was? He was Kyrie Irving. Same dude he yeah. was in Cleveland. Same dude he's going to be for better, or worse, whatever. Really fascinating guy. All of the above, but we think that people are going to change sometimes. When they and he didn't, yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, Jeff Green didn't love basketball up until Game Seven uh, in a Cavs. But
1: yeah, I'll but... tell you. I'll give you guys a little. There's a little podcast good for you. Doc Rivers texted me during that game, as I was calling <laughs> it Game Seven, to the something to, to the effect of finally Jeff Green has a you know like a great game in Boston or whatever.
0: <laughs> Man. It's, uh, love the inside scoop. Uh, anyways, really appreciate you coming on the show, Sean. Uh,
2: yeah, thanks yeah. for coming. We, we couldn't thank you enough.
1: Thank mm-hmm. you for your enthusiasm and and all of it. You, you're the reason that we do what we do. Mm-hmm.
2: Really appreciate it. Uh,
0: Sam, you want to give us the old outro as usual yeah. here?
2: You can follow um, Sean. What is it? At Sean Grandy play-by-play play on Twitter.
1: PBP, yeah.
2: PBP. They're like initials. <laughs> yep. Uh, follow him. He's always got the best stats in the game, for sure. Where Where do you get your stats? I meant to ask you that. Like, I mean, I know you come up with them, but where I do you get the creativity? A it myself,
1: it's sort of institutional memory, um, <laughs> and, and something that comes because you you'll remember a game. Again, very long story short. After every game, I do about fifteen, twenty, twenty five minutes of stat work, where I have a little file, and twenty or twenty minutes of work doesn't seem like a lot to put. Okay, here's a thirty point game here or a thirty one point game or this. They overcame a fifteen point deficit, they trail by twelve. But if you think twenty minutes a game for two thousand games, pretty soon I've got twenty years worth of you know, so I know pretty quickly here are the top sell the to comebacks of the last twenty years. I can do that very quickly during a game. So that's where it comes from. A lot of it's sort of institutional memory or a stat that I see at some point and I hang on to it knowing, Oh, that might be that might be something later. It's yeah. Crazy.
2: So yes, follow Sean at SeanGrandyPBP. PBP. We couldn't thank you enough for coming on. We really appreciate it. We were super pumped. You were the first guest that my parents knew who they were, believe it or <laughs> that's, not. They're, when I told they're, in,
1: they're in itself, that's that's the greatest honor of the day for me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you can follow us at Bannertown USA. You can follow Jack at Bannertown Jack. I'm Bannertown Sam. You can follow me there. That's our show for today. Goodbye.